It's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. Uh, you can find me. In oh, shit. I got it still up. Fuck, real quick. Oh, God damn it. I fucked up. All right, there you go. I know you guys couldn't hear it, and you hear me saying, oh, I fucked up. I saw the tab going in the background, so I, I look a little crazy to you guys. But, yeah, this is Jose Galison, No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major odd packages, and honestly, as well. Credit for that little intro. That was Romero Synth. You can find him on YouTube. I mean, maybe he'll be on other platforms, but... Uh, someone sent it to me. 
uh, actually Toad himself, the, my guest here. And uh, someone sent it, or Toad sent it to me, said this is pretty much a banger. I uh, messaged a guy and I was like, hey man, uh, this is pretty dope. He has a few hop synthwave songs. I was like, I'd like to start using these intros. And I told him, I was like, hey, I'm going to use them in the meantime because I don't believe in IP. You probably don't either. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, you know, I said, let me know if you have an issue with it. No, I won't. It was not a big deal. And, uh, yeah, Mr. Beck said, hell yeah, go for it. So, yeah, go check out his stuff. And I also let you know, I'm going to be using these for these series specifically. This uh, live ring of democracy, the God that failed. So, uh, that being said, if you're like watching the public live stream, uh, you know, because I do it on the live stream, like it's the 10th right now. If you're watching the 10th, you're watching the live stream. If you're doing it for the live stream, then, you know, or whatever. You have a little bit of lobby music, essentially. Uh, if you're watching the recording, if you want to fast forward, just fast forward. Because I know a lot of people complain about long intros and stuff. Fast forward. It's going to be roughly about three minutes. But, you know, or you can just vibe out to the dope ass music. That's up to you. It's whatever your thing is. So, you know, just those are your options. But just a disclaimer. I think that shit was a banger and it fits with the vibe. So, yeah. Uh, but I also mentioned the live stream these. So, like I said, if you're doing the 10th, you're watching the live stream. It will be publicly available for the live stream, but then I immediately put it behind a paywall after and release it roughly a week or so later. If you won't be able to have access in the meantime and not have to be waiting around for the live streams uh, to be ahead of the curve, uh, you got to go patreon.com. No, it's a 20 the lowest level, two bucks, the highest level, 20. 20 is my sponsors. My sponsor is our sponsors are Mikhail Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. I have Jeremy who has an Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash raising liberty. And then also my guest today, Toad, uh, who is a co host of my entire power hour. So, you know. His plugs, go check it. Go to Twitter, follow me at, uh, at or TPH underscore Toad, I believe, or Toad underscore TPH. I don't fucking remember. He'll, he'll give a plug, obviously, at the end of the episode again to let us know which one it is. Uh, but definitely go check out Tower Power. We had a banger last night with a uh, random who's a fun guest. But uh, yeah, let's also make sure you go check out Top Lobster. Top Lobster.com. Uh, use Jose at check for 10% off. It's my merch, a bunch of other shows, merch, Tower Power merch, a bunch of other stuff that's not show related. Definitely go check that out. Let's go ahead and get Toad in here. What the fuck's up, man? That's right. What's up? They, they would have had no idea that you had fucked up there if you, uh, if you didn't say Yeah, I know. Cause... It's not the first time. It's it's hard because it's like your immediate reaction is like, because, you know, in pod, like you're, we're podcasting here, but you just like your immediate, like your monkey brain just assumes what other, what you can hear, people you're talking to can hear or whatever. So yeah, yeah. No, I definitely could have just played it cool, but it's not the first time that's happened. I think I've done the same thing before yeah. but you know whatever who cares i mean i think the uh, lack of professionalism is kind of a little bit of a hallmark of this uh show so, you know, <laughs> that's our other show yeah that as well yeah for sure um but yeah toad you're back we're uh we're mm. continuing this series it's a long one uh, i'm enjoying it uh, again reading through this stuff again uh i'm trying to think there's anything else still vamping before we get into it i mean there's not really much to say i see james in the chat hey buddy What's up, James? Uh, what's up, dude? Uh, I was debating maybe, I don't know, I guess I, I, I'm i coming up close to my episode 200, so I think about doing something special, so maybe mm. I might have to bring James into that, we'll see. Uh, or maybe I'm a little bit late, I think I'm already at like 197, so I might be a little fucked up with my, uh, may not have prepared properly for a special event 200, it may just be a normal episode. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you uh, you ready to fucking get into this, dude? You, you excited to I'm, fucking do some more hop reading? I'm ready, yeah, the, uh, the hop away of... Uh... Yeah, music dude. is getting me pumped there, man. You right, should, uh, dude, that shit fucking slaps. I'm not gonna lie, that, that really is good. I'm like, Ooh. I told you, yeah, yeah, should, uh, yeah, use it more for the uh, for the rest of the series. Yeah, no, I'm that's what I plan on doing. Uh, it's like I said, I was trying to warn the audience because I know I always hear people complaining, especially when you do the plugs at the beginning. A little, little pro tip if you're watching this, if you're watching it, like pretty much every podcast in the world, 
usually does some sort of intro, some sort of usually plugs something. Uh, if you don't like that, fast forward. If you're if you're watching the live stream, I, I don't know what to tell you. Go go grab go take a leak. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know that that's one of the complaints that like kind of bugs me a little bit. It gets under my skin, but you know it just, is. Uh, just smoke some weed during it, yep. man. You know, like I guess so. Uh, but yeah, no, this is we're we're uh, we're uh, still in chapter one. Uh, we're we're getting near the end yeah. of the chapter, I believe. And uh, yeah, this is this is when it's starting to get juicy. Yeah, this this will be the end of the uh, the end of the chapter there, and I think we left off like yeah mid section somewhere last yeah, time. Yeah, but, yeah, so it's not really a clean start here, but it is what it is. I mean, if you're watching the show, you'd be. I mean, I'm all for people jumping in wherever if you want to, but I feel like it's kind of weird yeah. if you are. You probably should start with episode one, but you know whatever. Oh, or at least episode two, because episode one's the intro. I guess you can just skip the intro if you want. But. Yeah, well, he himself says that each chapter at least is, like, self-contained. So you could just do uh, episodes two through four or whatever for chapter one. Yeah, I have been trying to do a good job of – I'm usually really lazy when it comes to my video descriptions or podcast descriptions. You look at it. I've been trying to be good on uh, actually detailing, like, what pages and what chapter we're on. So if people, for some reason, want to selectively do it that way. I mean, I don't, maybe there's someone out there that does. I don't fucking know. Or if you just feel like doing it chapter by chapter, uh, you know, have at it. Uh, yeah. But all right, let's fucking go ahead and get into it, man. All right, page thirty, I believe. Yep, is where page we're at. thirty. Yeah. The legislatively enacted redistribution of income and wealth within civil society can essentially take on three forms. It can take the form of simple transfer payments in which income and/or wealth is taken from Peter, the haves, and doled out to Paul, the have-nots. Mm-hmm. It can take the form of free or below-cost provision of goods and services such as education, healthcare, or infrastructure. Because this, yeah, that's a, that's a that's one thing a lot of people don't take into account is when they're we're talking about uh, you know, because we were we left off on talking about income distri- like redistribution, like that is a form. Like I mean, don't get me wrong, you're getting mm-hmm. a, a diminished like value version of education or healthcare as opposed to the right. you know free market version, but it's still. It still is, I guess, in a certain sense, maybe there's a case to be made that, the, I guess, the lowest among us are getting a better product. But it's like, maybe, uh, as compared right. to what they would get. Um, right. I would still argue that that other uh, thing is still, like, robbing Peter to pay Paul, basically. Like, Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just people like to just have this imaginary idea of government. Oh, free. Um, yeah, in which like, income and or wealth is confiscated from one group of, group of individuals, the taxpayers, and handed out to another, non-identical one, the users of the respective goods and services. Or it can take the form of business and or consumer regulations or protection laws, such as price controls, tariffs, or licensing requirements. This is essentially corporate welfare uh, mm-hmm. by other ways. I mean, there's more blatant corporate welfare where they're literally just giving money, but there's other corporate welfare, which is just like, hey, we're going to make uh, the barrier for entry uh, really high for all your competitors. Um, right. where, whereby the wealth of the members of one group of businessmen or consumers is increased at the expense of a corresponding loss for those of another competing group by imposing legal restrictions on the use which the latter are permitted to make of their private properties. Yeah. Uh, and I would say that's more uh, insidious, like the regulation that we're uh, people are inclined to sort of think, hey, this is regulating like the big guy. But no, it's just like the big guy actually lobbies for that regulation because they know that they can uh, assume that cost because they already have an amount of money that will allow them to do that. And it's going to uh, weed out their potential competition. So, yeah, it's like uh, people have this, um, 
make-believe version of uh, libertarians, which I mean, and probably in some ways is somewhat responsible for Ayn Rand, from Ayn Rand. And I'm not, I'm not trying to argue with any objectivists that might come at me. I'm not saying this is specifically exactly what she thinks, but people's impression of it is that she has this um, loves the business. It's all about the rich people. Um, where so, like, my point I'm getting as a like, there's this like you know uh, view people tend to have is like the conservatives being all about the rich guys, and then the fucking uh, you know the the um, the liberals being all about the, the, the pores, but it's like, you know, we're, we're the ones who really see that, Hey, no, they're hauling, they're fucking over the middle class. Like they're, 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 they're basically hooking up like the super duper duper lowest among you. And even then there's an argument being made in a free society that, you know, they'd actually be better off. And then also the super duper duper wealthy. So, you yeah. know, so the ultra haves and the ultra have nots are both getting fucked uh, or not fucked, helped out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, regardless of its specific form, my list got the best of me there. Uh, however, any such redistribution has a twofold effect on civil society. First, the mere act of legislating uh, democratic lawmaking increases a degree of uncertainty. Rather than being immutable and hence predictable, law becomes increasingly flexible and unpredictable. What is right and wrong today may not be so tomorrow. I, I, I like this point he's getting at, but we can talk yes. about it here in a second. The, the future is thus rendered more haphazard. Consequently, all-around time preference degrees will rise. Consumption and short-term orientation will be stimulated. At the same time, the respect for all laws, which will, will be systematically undermined and crime promoted. For if there is no immutable standard of right, then there is also no firm definition of crime. Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of a lot to uh, unpack in that short statement there that paragraph but yeah whereas uh in the stuff that we were reading before he was talking about um how there's like an element of predictability to certain things and if there is then you know how to plan for it essentially whereas with yeah the government which could come down on you with some weird regulation at any time you don't know how to prepare for that really I, I do like how he makes the comparison of to right and wrong so this is what mm -hmm. i was kind of getting on a few episodes where in yeah, a certain sense of the, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's in a certain sense of the word, you can almost say something like economics is everything, depending on how you interpret it. Because mm -hmm. even here, he's essentially drawing economics out to uh, essentially affect morality. Uh, you know, and, and the state is essentially degrading our concept of what right and wrong is. So, yeah, uh, I don't know if you have anything to add. I don't know if I cut you off mid thought. No, I, I was just saying that, yeah, like the laws that they're going to impose uh, in most cases do not have anything to do with what is actually more. Yeah. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. You ready? Uh, these are your pages. Yeah. Second, any income or wealth redistribution within civil society implies that the recipients are made economically better off without having produced either more or better goods or services while others are made worse off without their having produced quantitatively or qualitatively less. Not producing, not producing anything worthwhile or not correctly predicting the future and the future exchange demand for one's products thus becomes relatively more attractive or less prohibitive as compared to producing something of value and predicting the future exchange demand correctly. Consequently, and regardless of the specific legislative intent, be it to help or protect the poor, the unemployed, the sick, the young or the old, the uneducated or the stupid, 
the farmers, steel workers, or truckers, the uninsured, the homeless, whites or blacks, the married or unmarried, those with children or those without, etc. There will be more people producing less and displaying poor foresight and fewer people producing more and predicting well. For if individuals possess even the slightest control over the criteria that entitle a person to be either on the receiving or on the giving end of the redistribution, they increasingly will shift out of the latter roles and onto the former. There will be more poor, unemployed, uninsured, uncompetitive, homeless, and so on than otherwise. Even if such a shift is not possible, as in the case of sex, race, or age-based income or wealth redistribution, the incentive to be productive and far-sighted will still be reduced. Right. So he's saying yeah. that if the government is uh, sort of just kind of on a whim picking like winners and losers, basically, you are going to think, hey, I can be one of those uh, like chosen ones, basically. And be uh, the receiver of that redistribution. So you're going to change your behavior accordingly and you'll be potentially less likely to actually produce something because everything's kind of about self-interest here. So it is sort of in your self-interest to get the most uh, for the least amount of effort, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely, this is where incentives are coming into play here. The idea that if, you know, if we're, we have welfare uh, by having something like welfare or corporate welfare, all you're going to do is create more of it because you're going to drive people to do it. Because, I mean, obviously say something with something like welfare, people are going to be like, oh, people are going to choose to be poor. I mean, it's not quite that simple, but more people are going to onboard on that. It's also going to probably make it harder for them to go from one to the other. If you're on welfare, you know, that usually have certain restrictions. You can be like, well... I can make a hundred, but uh, like a you know, I don't know, five hundred bucks more a month uh, working forty hours a week at this one place, or I can do nothing. You know, like, right. which is one going to choose? Uh, it, it will, it will clearly incentivize one way or the other. Like how I, even I, you know, I've been in a situation before where uh, I was in a weird spot between tax brackets, and it was like if we made a little bit less, our tax thing would have been so much better. And so it was like, yeah. we were like kind of scheming like, well, how do we make less here? Because <laughs> like, right. it would actually be to my benefit. <laughs> right. And for like less effort, which I think you were kind of getting at where there's like kind of that threshold there where you might say that I'm not even going to work like a little bit more if the payoff isn't like significantly more than what it is for me right now by not working. Yes. All right. Right. Uh, like I will take a little bit less to not work at all. Yeah, 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 for sure. So all, yeah, all the incentives are fucked up. Yeah. Uh, all right. There may not be more men or women or whites or blacks, at least not immediately. However, because the members of the privileged sex, race, or age group are awarded an unearned income, they have less of an incentive to earn one in the future. And because the members of the discriminated sex, race, or age group are punished for possessing wealth or having produced an income they too will be less productive in the future. I, I do want to, you know, he brought race into the equation. Oh no. This, this, this really brings up things like, uh, you know, people like Larry Elder or Thomas Sowell or their analysis of like, you know, the black race. And this is going to be offensive. I don't think there's anything, I know I joke a lot of my other show, but I don't think there's anything inherent uh, personally. I don't know. Maybe they do find some gene. I don't fucking know. But I, I, my take is that it's likely not some inherent qualitative thing to where, they tend like to be on welfare. I think it really was a matter of that. They, 
early on and like the races, you know, being here, they got put on welfare and that like, there's a lot of people who talk about this and how like before mm. the welfare state came up, they were like essentially rising as a race. And in, in, in that sense, economically, because there is definitely something to be said that we fucked over that race in, in that sense, you know, with slavery or whatever. And obviously you can argue who, who owned the ships, who, who brought the slaves, who did this. But at the end of the day, it's like, they did get screwed over by the state. And then the state yeah. then goes, comes in and like, is like, well, we'll help you out. And then uh, incentivized uh, essentially, uh, you know, the, the state that we see now in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, and yeah. once you do that, you sort of, uh, you create this like welfare dependency where it's really hard to get out of that situation once you're in it, uh, yes. which, which is what the state wants. Once you yeah. are dependent on them, they want uh, to keep it that way. Yeah. Um, and and this, by the way, that isn't even to say it's only exclusive to black people for anyone who wants to get some gotcha. Uh, Cause it's like, this is the same thing that happens to poor white people and they incentivize it in poor white trash areas. It's just that if you're talking about race, there definitely was a group of people that were, you know, in a bad spot that then got essentially handed this thing they thought was a handout or not a handout, but a, you know, help to help out. And it ended up being a crutch that fucked them over in the long run. So, you know, and it applies to other races as well. They were just in a different place if you're not an, analyzing it from a position of race. But yeah. And the other thing that he's uh, getting at here is that the government is uh, they're essentially disincentivizing productivity basically by taxing it. They're like incentivizing you to not work essentially by, hey, if, if you don't work, I'm going to pay you this money. And if you do, I'm going to steal money from you. So the incentives are all fucked up in that way. They're incentivizing the wrong thing or yeah, and disincentivizing uh, the right thing, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. Um, all right. Where are we at? In any case. Yeah. In any case, there will be less productive activity, self-reliance and future orientation and more consumption, parasitism, dependency and short-sightedness. That is the very problem that the redistribution was supposed to cure will have grown even bigger. Accordingly, the cost of maintaining the existing level of welfare redistribution or sorry, welfare distribution will be higher now than before. And in order to finance it, even higher taxes and more wealth confiscation must be imposed on the remaining producers. The tendency to shift from production to non-production activities will be further strengthened, leading to continuously rising time preference rates and a progressive decivilization, infantilization, and demoralization of civil society. Mm -hmm. I like, uh, yeah, the harsh words that he uses there to describe it. Yeah, yeah, no, and to bring it back to my middle class point I was making earlier, it's kind of the idea that, you know, you are essentially hollowing out the value of the lower class and then also hollowing out the value of the upper class, uh, you know, mm -hmm. or the, the very tippy-top upper class. So that's why you end up with, we see this, uh, I don't know, some things like, uh, I guess a good example would be, you know, social media where you have sites where they're uh, incredibly like moderating content to a, a crazy degree. Uh, it's why so many people don't really even use Facebook hardly anymore. Uh, and it's because, yeah, they, they, like it, they have fucked up the incentives in a true free state. They likely like they're essentially decreasing their value to align with the state in a lot of ways. So and this is a result of it because they get involved in you know various different ways. Maybe that wasn't the best example, but I was trying to make the idea that it's not just well poor people. It's it's also at the at the top, but it's kind of harder to see the uh, when you, you're talking about a company that where millions or, or billions of dollars come through, it's a little bit harder to visualize the idea of them like, you know, be sucking value out of like other, you know, groups, you know, so. Right. Them being, uh, yeah, 
welfare whores, basically. Yes. Which they still are, yes. And he does, yeah. uh, of course, apply time preference to all of this stuff as well, where if you're like shifting these incentives like this, you're incentivizing more uh, high time preference behavior as well, so mm -hmm. which is like not working. So yeah. uh, in addition, with public ownership and free entry into a democratic Republican government, the foreign policy changes as well. All governments are expected to be expansionary, as explained above, and there is no reason to assume that a president's expansionary desires will be smaller than a king's. However, while a king may satisfy his desire through marriage, which is something that he already got at earlier in this chapter, this route is essentially precluded for a president. He does not own the government-controlled territory, hence he cannot contractually combine separate territories. And even if he concluded intergovernment treaties, these would not possess the status or the status of contracts, but constitute at best only temporary pacts or alliances, because as agreements concerning publicly owned resources, they could be revoked at any time by other future governments. If a democratic ruler and a democratically elected ruling elite want to expand their territory and hence their tax base, then only a military option of conquest and domination is open to them. Hence, the likelihood of war will be significantly increased. I do like how he points out that essentially a uh, like a, a de more democracy styled type government is going to completely devalue any sort of interstate relations. And that is a thing where, mm. I mean, it's a weird concept to think about because we have all these treaties and this and that. And how often are they just completely changed? How many times was the Afghanistan uh, withdrawal uh, thing renegotiated? Like, mm -hmm. you know, especially between yeah. specifically between Trump to Biden. Biden right. pushed it back to suit yeah. uh, his own purposes, basically. And, yeah. Yeah. And so it, what what do these agreements mean when the next guy can change everything or the same guy can change it? Because you can I don't know, he can pass off the blame on some other person with the administration. It, it just it doesn't mean anything, basically. You know, right. the Iran, um, the Iran nuclear deal. Like, look at that. Like, so right, yeah. Trump uh, backed out of that, I believe. Um, after yeah, Obama had uh, entered into it, and then because Obama entered into it, that pissed off Saudi Arabia, and then he decided, hey, we have to start genociding Yemen to appease the Saudis. Yeah, and it's it, totally yeah. ridiculous. And whether you think, it, like, as I know, people are torn the Iran deal, whatever. I don't care. That's not even the point. The point is the idea that, like, whether it should have been there in the first place, that. The whole idea is once you make these sorts of treaties and agreements, it's supposed to be binding to some sense. So if you can just willy-nilly an ex-administration change things, it means nothing. Whereas the point with mm. something like a monarchy, it's more binding. It's the same person. And even if it's not the same person, it's that person's likely their offspring, and they're going to be uh, be more held to the same agreements. So, Right. Um, yeah, and like with the U.S., like, yeah, people are like, hey, we have treaties. We have like NATO and shit like that. And it's like, yeah, well, NATO – is constantly like provoking war all over the place. So yeah. All right. Moreover, not only the likelihood, but also the form of war will change. Typically monarchical, monarchical wars arise out of disputes over inheritances brought on by a complex network of interdynastic marriages and the irregular, but constant extinction of certain dynasties as violent inheritance disputes, monarchical wars are, or as is violent inheritance? Yeah, I read that, the, read that wrong in my head. Monarchal wars are characterized by territorial objectives. They are not ideologically motivated quarrels, but disputes over tangible properties. 
-hmm. Moreover, since they are interdynastic property disputes, the public considers war the king's private affair to be financed and executed with his own money and military forces. I underlined that one, so that's uh, that's 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 an important line to keep in mind. Uh, further, as private conflicts between different ruling families, the public experts and the kings feel compelled to recognize a clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants and to target their war efforts specifically against each other and their respective private property. Uh, before I move to the next part, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I mean, he already did kind of mention this where uh, because yeah. there's more of that clear distinction where, hey, this is like the king uh, doing this with his own stuff. Uh, it's, you know, more likely, uh, I don't even know what the hell I was going to say there. It, well, it's like less likely that he's going to be going to war with that. Yeah. Uh, because it has more uh, consequences for himself. Uh, yeah. And the public will, uh, yeah, it'll there'll be more visibility into it for the public. They'll be able to see, hey, this is the king's war that's going on. I think the thing that he probably hadn't mentioned yet before that paragraph was that um, in like a democratic system, the war will like suck in the people to the point where the people are all like the soldiers and they're physically actually at war and getting killed over this. Whereas that's going to be less likely to happen in a monarchy, which uh, historically was the case where these monarchies who were warring with each other, people knew that, Hey, this is like the government's war. And I think it would be more of a case where they were like explicitly like, yeah, I'm going to like sign up for this and like do this. Yeah, no, he did bring it up if I remember correctly in the uh, the intro, but I, I I think it was more of a matter of a fact as opposed to like the argument leading up to it, uh, kind of like what we have here. But yeah, no, yeah. that definitely is a which makes sense because if you're in a in a in a you know democracy, you know when you have war, the whole idea is that it you know it's supposed to represent the people. So in order, I mean, I guess technically, yes, a democracy can just blatantly do whatever the hell they want if they want to, but it's usually not how the game works. Uh, you know, how it works is they have to at least somewhat give the appearance that there's a public buy-in and to make this a strict, oh, we want this land. It's a lot harder thing to buy into. So they usually have to create some sort of narrative or, you know, whether it's created or if it's yeah, organic, it's, yeah. it's, it's regarded. Year, it's, right? it's, yeah. it's WMDs. We have to invade Iraq to keep you guys safe. Yes. As late as the 18th century notes, uh, military historian Michael Howard. On the continent, commerce, travel, cultural, and learned intercourse went on in wartime almost unhindered. The wars were the king's wars. The role of the good citizen was to pay his taxes, and sound political economy dictated that he should be left alone to make the money out of which to pay those taxes. He was required to, to participate neither in the decision out of which wars arose, nor to take part in them once they broke out, unless prompted by a spirit of youthful adventure. Mm -hmm. These matters were arcane regni, the concern of the sovereign alone. Right, exactly. So, yeah, people were more likely to see it as that. And in those monarchical wars, I think what I was uh, also about to say was that uh, there was more of a tendency to keep those wars like just government versus government. And, and they wouldn't wind up like dragging civilians into it and having like massive amounts of civil civilian casualties, which is more of a more of something that happens in these uh, democratic uh wars or wars yeah between democratic governments yes because yeah. it's, because there's those lines are totally blurred so it's just like this country versus this country and that includes all the people instead of no the wars this king versus this king and yeah, that and doesn't I, involve us and he didn't bring it up here but I, I would have a strong feeling and maybe this would be 
Uh, maybe Hoppe would make the case that this is something that's like a deterioration away from uh, monarchy, but I, I would think there's something along the lines that's interesting in the idea of that you mentioned the line about the spirit of youthful adventure. So I'm sure, you know, in this, you know, theoretical monarchy that, you know, Hoppe is, uh, you know, talking yeah. about, <laughs> the idea is that there would be people who would, you know, go to war just for funsies. And uh, I, I would think one of the motivating factors of that would be to, I guess you technically wouldn't cross over that line into a different class, but you may blur it. Cause I mean, you know, in old, old times, I'm sure that would get them uh, maybe yeah, they'd be able to get land or, or knighthood or, you know, in, yeah, not technically in that uh, upper class, but they're kind of blurring the lines, moving to a higher strata. Although that might not be the specific type of uh, fucking, um, you know, uh, monarchy he may be referring to, but I thought that was an interesting idea. That right. And as he was mentioning, yeah, like these wars also tended to actually involve like property where you could actually distinguish yeah. like, hey, this is this uh, property that belongs to this king or whatever. And this is this property that belongs to this king. Whereas with the uh, like democratic uh, government's wars, like they're really, you can't really see that distinction. So they're over like ideology instead. Yeah. In fact, writes Guglielmo uh, Ferrero of the 18th century. War became limited and uncircumscribed by a system of precise rules. It was definitely regarded as a kind of single combat between the two armies, the civil population being merely spectators. Pillage, requisitions, and acts of violence against the population were forbidden in the home country as well as in the enemy country. Each army established depots in its rear and carefully chosen towns, shifting them as it moved about. Conscription existed only in a rudimentary and sporadic form. Soldiers being scarce and hard to find, everything was done to ensure their quality by a long, patient, and meticulous training. But as this was costly, it rendered them very valuable and it was necessary to let as few be killed as possible. Mm -hmm. Having to economize their men, generals tried to avoid fighting battles. The object of warfare was the execution of skillful maneuvers and not the annihilation of the adversary. A campaign without battles and without loss of life, a victory obtained by a clever combination of movements, was considered the crowning achievement of this art, the ideal pattern of perfection. It was avarice and calculation that made war more humane. War mm -hmm. became a kind of game between sovereigns. A war was a game with its rulers and its stakes, a territory, an alliance, an inheritance, a throne, a treaty. The loser paid, but it, but a just pro proportion was always kept between the value of the stake and the risk to be taken, and the parties were always on guard against the kind of obstinacy which makes a player lose his head. They tried to keep the game in hand and to know when to stop. I thought that was an interesting yeah. little bit. Yeah, I can see why uh, Hoppe quoted that because that's a very Hoppian point where he's essentially saying that in these uh, monarchical wars, uh, the rulers are actually incentivized to not kill their people because people had to like kind of voluntarily sign up for this and there weren't going to be that many of them. So the people, uh, like the soldiers, weren't just disposable. So it's like, well, if we lose these soldiers, like that's like a real problem. Like that's a real loss because we don't know like where we're going to get some more of these guys like this. So they, uh, the rulers are actually incentivized to keep them alive. So they're going to try to win these wars like more strategically, not just with like mass casualties like this. Whereas with the democratic systems and whatever, as we've seen, we have government conscription of soldiers, the draft, shit like that, where it's like they can just, you know, force people into it. So they don't care about that loss of life as much because they know they can just keep creating more and more soldiers. And then, you know, they have their massive indoctrination campaigns and stuff like that that are creating more and more soldiers as well, where people think, yeah, I'm going to go and, you know, like 
kill myself some Arabs and shit like that because they did this to us and whatever. Yeah, and it's a. I do like the idea that it's like a, once again he kind of makes the point that a monarchy in in some ways is almost like a pseudo, uh, you know, free thing. Like it's like yes, it's not, but like it's like putting it in these terms, it's almost like it's a a free market warfare, I guess, in a way, and and not in the way with like BlackRock or some shit. And more in like a more in yeah. like a hey, you know, we're all incentivized to you know to get this thing and to not hurt each other. Uh, you know, like it's. In, in, in a certain way, you can almost imagine this in a free market, in a true free market, how you would deal with, I don't know, criminal justice. Let's say, for example, it's like the idea would be to get your like if you lose, you know, some sort of item of large value, the idea would be to get your value back. The idea is not to murder people. I mean, it's you, the idea is to bring the people who took your your shit uh, and to get your shit back. And that's really it. Like, exactly. Yeah. It's about know? property and yeah, trying to get that stuff back uh, with like the least amount of loss possible, which is kind of the more like private uh, way that things would be handled. And yeah, it's interesting you brought up BlackRock because yeah, of course it's a private company, bro, which is hilarious because the uh, like the mo- in a monarchy, like one of these monarchies that he's talking about, that monarchy, which is a government, is actually more private or behaves more like a private actor than uh, a supposed private company like BlackRock does. Like BlackRock was more of a state than one of these monarchies. Yes, at least least specifically uh, in the context of like a foreign policy type thing, you know. So, but uh, yeah, all right, Uh, it's, it's on to you now. All right. In contrast, democratic wars tend to be total wars. In blurring the distinction between the rulers and the ruled, a democratic republic strengthens the identification of the public with a particular state. Yeah, which is what I was just uh, mentioning back there. Yeah. Indeed, while dynastic rule promotes the identification with one's own family and community and the development of a cosmopolitan outlook and attitude, democratic republicanism inevitably leads to nationalism i.e. the emotional identification of the public with large anonymous groups of people characterized in terms of a common language, history, religion, and or culture, and in contradistinction to other foreign nations. Wait, Hoppe is actually uh, rejecting nationalism in that, in that uh, passage? What? You don't I mean, say I'd say it? yes and no in a yeah, certain well, sense, yeah. you, know, yeah. you know, but yeah, I'm, I get you're being cheeky, but go on. I am, yes. Um, yeah, so that's basically, those are just, yeah, the points that I kind of, um, yeah, was getting at where it's like, yeah, like you, uh, as like an American, you're going to see these, uh, governments or these wars that the government is waging as sort of like, this is a war of the Americans and you identify with your rulers in that case, uh, because of the way that the system of government is, and you don't recognize that, Hey, this is your government actually dragging you into this and you are not them. Whereas these foreign nations, uh, they're also going to see you as in, in most cases, probably see you as your government as well. And like hate all Americans because of what their government is doing. So that, yeah, that is sort of the result of, uh, yeah, these, uh, more democratic wars, if you want to call yeah. them that. I would say, I mean, maybe some Hoppy might disagree with me, but I'd say a good way to, uh, understand how Hoppe probably felt or feels about nationalism so to speak, as James just commented, yes. um, I would say you could almost make the comparison between 
his idea of natural elites and elites as they currently are. Like if you look at elites nowadays, there's a distortion in the system, that being the state, uh, you know, coercion, whatever, that's caused all sorts of fuck ups where, yeah, there probably are some people in the elite things that are natural elites, but there's also a lot that would not John be Fetterman. That. Yeah, oh. they're, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fetterman, uh, like they would definitely not be elite in a true free system. Uh, and so I would, I would compare that to nationalism and the idea of that uh, in a nationalism sense, like, yes, like they're, they're identifying uh, with certain things, like people identify with the USA, but it's like, you're, you're kind of, it's a distortion. It, it, you know, it's like, it, it is good to uh, have some sort of kinship with your, your fellow man, your, and, and I, and even it's, if you choose to, uh, you know, when I actually think it's a good way to live, to identify yourself by your, your, uh, your, you know, whether it be your, the area you live in, the culture you're around or what have you, or even your religion, whatever your thing is. I, I think it's not bad for people to group up in those ways, but now when you associate it with a state and then you, you know, like it becomes this whole other thing, it's, it's a big distortion. So. Right, yeah, he's mentioning here that, yeah, it just, uh, the democratic uh, system, yeah, collectivizes everything, whereas in the monarchic system, there's more of a tendency to see things uh, sort of uh, through the lens of family, like, hey, this is this family doing this, rather than this is, yeah, all of us doing this, like, yeah, we are not the king, yeah. in uh, the case of the monarchy. Uh, okay, interstate wars are thus transformed into national wars. Rather than representing merely violent dynastic property disputes, which may be resolved through acts of territorial occupation, they become battles between different ways of life, which can only be resolved through cultural, linguistic, or religious domination and subjugation or extermination. It becomes more and more difficult for members of the public to remain neutral or to extricate themselves from all personal involvement. Resistance against higher taxes to fund a war is increasingly considered treachery or treason. Conscription becomes the rule rather than the exception. And with mass armies of cheap and hence easily disposable conscripts fighting for national supremacy or against national suppression, backed by the economic resources of the entire nation, all distinctions between combatants and non-combatants fall by the wayside and wars become, become increasingly brutal. Quote, uh, once the state ceased to be regarded as property of dynastic princes, notes Michael Howard, and became instead the instrument of powerful forces dedicated to such abstract concepts as liberty or nationality or revolution, which enabled large numbers of the population to see in that, see in that state the embodiment of some absolute good for which no price was too high, no sacrifice too great to pay, then the temperate and indecisive contests of the Rococo age appeared as absurd anachronisms. All right. Yeah, I don't have much to add unless you have some too in that bit. But it's um, all good stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, the conscription thing was, yeah, sort of the point that I was already making there. And then he was saying, like, when he's, you know, in like the age of COVID, when he's talking about how it becomes like more and more difficult to extricate yourself from everything the government is doing. You can consider like the war on COVID to be a war like that is really uh, sort of, uh, yeah, like shining a light on that uh, concept where like you cannot extricate your, yourself from this. You have to be a soldier against COVID in the war on COVID. You have to get the vaccine. 
and there's like nothing you can do about it or you're going to get fired and shit like that you know yeah it, it is funny the uh the the war on this the war on that is kind of like the uh it is a natural evolution of the uh you know the idea of ideological wars or foreign policy it becomes you know, in some ways, it's almost there's not really a distinction because it just becomes a war on you in a different term, uh, right. you know, like or said in a different way. And even then, it has the same concepts, like the war on drugs, especially like the '90s. They were really pushing everyone to try to be like, "Oh, hoorah!" You know, "Oh, bad drugs," and you know, going wrong. Some drugs are bad, and and drugs done in certain ways, same, you know, can be bad for some people and not for others. And it's a whole nuanced conversation. But the, yeah. the idea that, you know, it became this ideological thing is the, the idea mm. I'm getting at. You know? Yeah, it removes the idea of the individual. And then, yeah, the other thing that he pointed out in that passage was, of course, that everybody sort of becomes party uh, to that war through uh, merely taxation, right? So you're yes. like a large percentage of uh, the tax money is going towards all these uh, foreign wars. So, yeah, yeah, like it's impossible to extricate yourself from it completely. So you are funding uh, these wars and this uh, – mass murder that's going on in these foreign countries yep in distinct contrast to the limited warfare of the ancient regime then the new era of democratic republican warfare which began with the french revolution and the napoleonic wars which is further exhibited during the 19th century by the american war of southern independence or you can call it the of uh, <laughs> northern aggression uh in which reaches exactly. in which reaches its apex during the 20th century with World War One and World War Two, and continues to the present is the era of total war. As William A. Orton has summarized it, 19th century wars were kept within the bound within bounds by the tradition, well recognized in international law, that civilian property and businesses were outside the sphere of combat. Civilian assets were not exposed to arbitrary distraint or permanent seizure, and apart from such territorial and financial stipulations as one state might impose on another. The economic and cultural life of the belligerents were generally allowed to continue pretty much as it had been. 20th century practice has changed all that. During both world wars, limitless lists of limited limitless lists of contraband, coupled with unilateral decla declarations of maritime law, but every sort of commerce in jeopardy made waste paper of all precedents. The close of the first war is marked by a determined and successful effort to impair the economic recovery of the principal losers and to retain certain civilian properties. The second war has seen the extension of that policy to a point at which an international law and war has ceased to exist. For years, the government of Germany, so far as its arms could reach, had based a policy of confiscation on racial theory that had no standing in civil war or civil law, international law, nor Christian ethics. And when the war began, that violation of the comedy of nations proved uh, contagious. Anglo-American leadership in both speech and actions launched a crusade that admitted of neither legal nor territorial limits to the exercise of coercion. The concept of neutrality was denounced in both theory and practice. Not only enemy assets and interests, but the assets and interests of any parties whatsoever, even in neutral countries, were exposed to every constraint the belligerent powers could make effective. And the assets and interests of neutral states and their civilians lodged in belligerent territories or under belligerent control were subjected to practically the same sort of coercion as those of enemy nationals. Thus, total war became a sort, a sort of war that no civilian community could hope to escape, and peace-loving nations will draw the obvious inference. 
Yeah, um, I, I do like uh, how uh, he yeah refers to the Civil War as the the uh, War of Southern Independence, which uh, is yeah more of an accurate uh, description. Or states rights to do way. what, dude? States rights to do what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Enslave. Yeah. No, it, it, I mean that was certainly part of it as well. But states, of course, do have the right to uh, secede from the uh, federal government as well. And what the uh, you know what the Union uh, did in, in that war was, of course, much worse. And as uh, he's pointing out here, or this uh, quote, uh, sort of summarizing it, like it was one of the situations where it became total war and involved all of the people. Yeah, and I do like the the point that he's making the brutality and how it ends up working. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the look at World War II. It is crazy yeah, oh, yeah. when you you go you do you know twelve years in a government school or whatever, thirteen or whatever it is. And you usually come out with this idea that World War II is like, that's like your default always, like why we need a government because the Nazis, World War II, oh, we had to stop them. But it, like, and I'm not saying the Nazis were good. I'm not saying that at all. But if you look at the horrendous things that were done by every per, like every actor within World War II, and then you, you, mm-hmm. you try to make the case that, oh, well, this justifies, it's just, it's beyond, like, you look well, at like well, a, yeah, the U.S. nuked Japan uh, basically yeah. after the war was over. Yeah, yeah, and that wasn't even the worst. People look at the nukes as like one of the worst things ever. They weren't. Like you look at uh, what was the firebombing of Tokyo that claimed way more lives. Uh, mm. I believe the burning of Dresden. I believe uh, did as well. Uh, although I don't know, I don't believe Dresden was us, but that was our allies. I believe I might be a little bit wrong. I'm sure we played uh, yeah, some. I would have to look that up. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, it's not. So you just look at the pure numbers. I know shortly after. I'm not sure when the Geneva con- con- uh, conventions came in play, but we did start to try to be like make distinctions. But even then, they find ways around it. I mean, like you look at the modern day, uh, you know, the uh, you know wars on terror or whatever, and it's and they just found loopholes because it's like, well, we're not fighting an actual established military, so we it's way harder to abide by you know this whole like strict right. like. This is uh, this is the red team and this is the blue team and this is why you're able to make these blurring of lines. This is why uh, I think more innocent innocent people died than the actual targets. I believe in the drone one. I, I used to know the stats way better, but it's egregious mm. the uh, casualties, the non-intended casualties, and even then, that's assuming that their intended casual or intended deaths were even you know uh, rightful targets to begin with. And I don't trust them to that extent. So, yeah, Yeah, I I don't know if this um, passage here mentioned this, although I think Hoppe mentioned like in the intro to the book, uh, like also what happens in wars, like uh, after the war is over, you can see that governments will like really like bring the hammer down on the people of like the losing nation. Like what happened in uh, the treaty of Versailles to Germany, which then is pretty much what led to the rise of Hitler. Yeah, and I know there were a lot of talks too. I, I believe. I mean, I wish I remembered more. This is a lot covered a lot in uh, Pete Quinones and Tom and Seven Seven Sevens. Uh, you know, the talks about like World War Two and stuff. And they, I wish I could remember the specifics, but there were lots of talks of like you know the so-called good people of exterminating certain people or mass casualties even after the fact. You know, like this, these were ideas yeah. being kicked around by the elites. So it's like uh, you know these are the so-called good guys, and they were just talking about like, well, you know the. Germans were the bad guys, or this person was for the bad guys, so fuck them. Like, like, yep, they're all they're all damned. Just being a German thus makes you bad in the end, you know. Like, um, right, yeah, right. And even just through, yeah, like the harsh economic sanctions, like what I was mentioning yeah. with the Treaty of Versailles, or like what uh, 
you know, like Bill Clinton did with the blockade of Iraq and things like that, where you're just starving the nation. Like that's still yeah. an act of war. We imprisoned our own Japanese within our own country. So like right. <laughs> to make that point. Um, exactly. All right. Retrospective and prospects. The process of civilization set in motion by individual saving, investment, and the accumulation of durable consumer goods and capital goods of gradually falling time preferences uh, and an ever-widening and lengthening range and horizon of, of private provisions may be temporarily upset by crime. But because a person is permitted to defend himself against crime, the existence of criminal activities does not alter the direction of this of the process. It merely leads to more defense spending and less non-defense spending. Mm -hmm. Instead, a change in direction, stagnating or even rising time preferences, can be brought about only if property rights violations become institutionalized. Right. Um, i.e. in the environment of government, whereas all governments must be assumed to have a tendency towards internal growth as well as territorial expansion. And not all forms of government can be expected to e be equally successful in their endeavors. If the government is privately owned, the incentive structure facing the ruler is such that it is in his self-interest to be relatively farsighted to engage only in moderate taxation and welfare. The speed of the process of civilization will be slowed down systematically. However, the decivilizing decivilizing forces uh, rising among or from monarchical rule may be expected to be insufficiently strong to overcome the fundamental countervailing tendency toward time, or falling time preference rates and ever expanding ranges of private provisions. Rather, it is only when a government is publicly owned that the decivilizing effects of government can be expected to grow strong enough to actually halt the civilizing process or even to alter its direction and bring about an opposite tendency toward decivilization, capital consumption, shrinking planning horizons and provisions, and a progress progressive infantilization and brutalization of social life. Right. This makes me think of, uh, I believe it was Oppenheimer who puts uh, the state in terms of what the um, – the essentially predator or, or the uh, the predators and the producers. I, I don't think that's exactly how he put it. And it's almost like there's these two forces mm -hmm. going on all the time. You have the leech upon the upon us. It's like the predator or whatever. And then yeah. you have the the producers. And right. you know you see things like the 20th century where we had a huge boom in uh, like technological advancements and you know quality of life. And that was from production. And then the state, you know, kind of was this countervailing thing that sucked off of it. The, the idea in this 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 mm -hmm. uh, paragraph is that. A monarchy will only do it slightly, whereas something like a uh, more of a you know democracy type thing will, for one, you know, grow larger and you know extract more from its hosts over time, and you mm. know essentially hold it back even more to the point to where it may even destroy it. You know, right? Yeah, which is yeah, what kind of leads to yeah, like total yeah collapse of that particular uh, civilization, things like that. Yeah, so. As he was saying, yeah, the government can grow uh, to be so large that it will, uh, yeah, uh, counteract the uh, civilization uh, or the civilizing aspects of the society and the production of it. And it will, yeah, the uh, predatorial aspects of it will uh, end up outweighing the production uh, to such a degree that it will, yeah, just completely... Uh, stop it essentially yeah. um and once again i do want to emphasize that hoppa is definitely making it clear that the monarchy is still a leech upon the producers mm -hmm. it's just a much smaller one um you know so the, the i mean you right. would still be better off if you didn't have it but uh, but like you know, it's, it's it's a matter of degree uh but 
Right. And I like how he does uh, keep pointing out that it, yeah, like infantilizes uh, the population, which, you know, we have seen where it's like, you know, everybody kind of uh, starts treating the government as sort of like their parents. Everybody becomes like more childish in that way. And I guess the other thing that he yeah was pointing out in that uh, paragraph was uh, something he already pointed out uh, earlier in the chapter uh, with um, the effects on time preference uh, from the fact that uh like if you if you just have like you know a home invader this one time that's kind of this like temporary thing and it's only a temporary cost to you that you have to deal with whereas if you have these um you know when the government comes in uh these violations uh of your property become institutionalized so you're having to deal with that at all times so then it like moves you to a completely different time preference uh curve even so it, yeah, it completely uh, heightens your time preference because you'll have to be spending uh, more of your money uh, in that uh, aspect or, you know, to that extent as well yep. at all times. So, all right. Uh, it's, now it's it, becomes, it becomes yeah, a permanent violation. Yep. All right. Uh, retrospectively, in light of these theoretical conclusions, much of modern European and Western history can be rationally reconstructed and understood. In the course of one and a half centuries, beginning with the American and French revolutions and continuing to the present, Europe and in its wake, the entire Western world has undergone an epochal transformation. Everywhere, monarchical rule and sovereign kings were replaced by democratic republican rule and sovereign peoples. The first direct attack by republicanism and popular sovereignty on the monarchical principle was repelled with the military defeat of Napoleon and the restoration of Bourbon rule in France. As a result of the Napoleonic experience, republicanism was widely discredited during much of the 19th century. Republicanism was still thought to be violent, bellicose in its foreign policy, turbulent in its political workings, unfriendly to the church and socialistic, or at least equalitarian in its view of property and private wealth. Still, the Democratic-Republican spirit of the French Revolution left a permanent imprint. From the restoration of the monarchical order in 1815 until the outbreak of World War I in 1914, popular political participation and representation was systematically expanded across all Europe. Everywhere, the franchise was successfully widened and the powers of popularly elected parliaments were gradually increased. So, yeah, I don't know if there's too much to add to that. Yeah, but I mean, uh, that's just stating things, so it's not really much <laughs> analysis to be added there. Yeah, sort of just the history of, um, yeah, the end of uh, the monarchies in Europe and the uh, progression towards uh, more democratic rule. And it, it is cool to, you know, provide a – I mean, obviously, we're taking his word for it. I'm sure if you look at the footnotes, there can be more to back this up. The the uh the time it is cool to look at the historical view at that time of you know democracy or republicanism or whatever you want to call it so uh it, it, it's an interesting thing to see how they looked at it you know especially you know prior to world war ii and the big shift but yep right um all right N nonetheless although increasingly emasculated the principle of monarchical government remained dominant until the cataclysmic events of World War I. Before the war, only two republics existed in Europe, Switzerland and France. 
Only four years later, after the United States government had entered the European war and decisively determined its outcome, monarchies had all but disappeared and Europe had turned to democratic republicanism. With the involvement of the U.S., the war took on a new dimension. Rather than being an old-fashioned territorial dispute, as was the case before 1917, it turned into an ideological war. The U.S. had been founded as a republic, and the democratic principle in particular inherent in the idea of a republic had only recently been carried to victory as the result of the violent defeat and devastation of the secessionist confederacy by the centralist union government. At the time of World War I, this triumphant ideology of expansionist democratic republicanism had found its very personification in then U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. I, I do. I would like to point out that I do really like that he uses uh, the Civil War as Civil like War, a huge yeah. um, paradigm shift in our movement right. from essentially, I guess he's getting to what would be closer to monarchy, which was like a a constitutional republic as, as it was started to mm. becoming far more democratic because uh, the, there was a lot right. of shit that happened during the Lincoln rule that, you know, and shit, just the, the very concept of having a civil war, uh, mm. you know, degrades the concept of the constitutional republic, how it was, it was started. Yeah. Uh, the whole idea that you're supposed, it was supposed to be an idea that anyone can break away from essentially. It's a, yeah. it's a group of voluntary States in a certain way, uh, you know, so essentially a group of, Little monarchies in a certain sense, I guess, kind of. But. Right. It's, yeah, decentralized. He's making yeah. the point that, yeah, the result of the Civil War was um, one of the first, like, huge uh, pushes uh, toward total centralization of everything. And then the U.S. continued uh, that in World War One when they had entered it, whereas before the U.S. had entered World War One, it was these, uh, like, kind of, yeah, competing monarchies. So Europe itself was more decentralized as well. And it was, yeah, this war between monarchies. And then when Woodrow Wilson in the U.S. entered it, which they had really no real right to do so, and these wars had nothing to do with the U.S. at all, he comes in there and it's all about, you know, spreading democracy all over, uh, you know, Europe at that point. And that sort of, uh, yeah, became like the sort of the beginning, or well, it was like the end of uh, the monarchies and more the beginning of like the uh, centralization of Europe, whereas like he was saying before that it was really only, uh, I guess, France and uh, Switzerland that kind of had that more uh, democratic uh, system already at that point. Um, and Switzerland, like I would argue, was still like very decentralized. I mean, it's still a pretty decentralized yeah, nation. It's really, and, it's like broken up into like little apologies. Like, I don't know the specifics of it. 32 but, uh, cantons, yeah, and they yeah. have different languages because some of them speak French, some of them speak yeah. German. Uh, I think some might speak Italian as well. So a lot of different yeah, cultures that they still have their own yeah, kind of territory there. Um, they have, they have pretty high gun ownership there still, and they're not in the EU. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, Woodrow right. Wilson, that's where we're at. Boo. All right. Uh, under Wilson's administration, the European war became an ideological mission to make the world safe for democracy and free of dynastic rulers. Oh, those bad, uh, you know, kings and monarchists. Hence, the defeated Romanovs, Hohenzollerns, and Habsburgs had to abdicate or resign, and Russia, Germany, and Austria became democratic republics with universal male and female, repeal the 19th, suffrage, and parliamentary governments. 
Likewise, all of the newly created successor states, Poland, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia adopted democratic Republican constitutions with Yugoslavia as the only exception. In Turkey and Greece, the monarchies were overthrown. And even where monarchies remain in existence, as in Great Britain, Italy, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the Scandinavian countries, the monarchs no longer exercise any governmental power. And that's something we were uh, talking about last, uh, one of the last episodes as well. Although I still, yeah, consider like, you know, the Queen of England to still be, you know, of course, in that like political elite as well, like in that class, yeah. but they're not, yeah, you know, the like ruling government either. And it's no longer that privatized government, of course, or, you know, government that is more akin to something private, I guess we would and say. Fun fact, though, the queen actually uh, does, or I guess the king now, does actually have a lot of political power. It's just kind of almost a cultural or traditional thing where they don't exercise it for the most part. Because, uh, uh, I don't know, I watched this thing once where they were breaking down all the specific things, like rights they still maintain or, or, or you know, like uh, privileges they have to, you know, influence law or what have you. And they actually have quite a bit. It's just they just for some reason just don't. So, uh, which I mean, it's effectually in, in effect the same thing. So, <laughs> like, um, yeah. All right. Yeah. You did you finish up? Where were you? Um, Everywhere. Last, uni- oh yeah, yeah. Last sentence, I guess. Yeah. Everywhere, universal adult suffrage was introduced, and all government power was invested in parliaments and public officials. Yeah. yeah so the right to vote became, yeah, a thing essentially. Yep. A new era, the Democratic Republican Age, under the ages of dominating U.S. government, had begun. Um, from the perspective of economic theory, the end of World War I can be identified as the point in time at which private government ownership was completely replaced by public government ownership, and from which a tendency toward rising degrees of social time preference, government growth, and an attending process of decivilization should be expected to have taken off. Indeed, as in, indicated in detail above, such has been the grand underlying theme of 20th century Western history. Since 1918, practically all indicators of high or rising time preferences have ex- exhibited a systematic upward tendency. As far as government is concerned, democratic republicanism produced com- communism, fascism, national socialism, and lastly and most enduringly, social democracy. Compulsory military service has become almost universal. Foreign and civil wars have increased in frequency and in brutality, and the process of political decentralization, or political decent, or God, why do I keep fucking up? Political centralization, not mm-hmm. decentralization, has advanced further than ever. Internally, democratic republicanism has led to permanently rising taxes, debts, and public employment. It has led to the destruction of the gold standard, unparalleled paper money inflation, and increased protectionism and migration controls. Even the most fundamental private law provisions have been perverted by an unabating flood of legislation and regulation. Simultaneously, as regards civil society, the institutions of marriage and family have been increasingly weakened, the number of children has declined, and the rates of divorce, illegitimacy, single parenthood, singledom, and abortion have increased. Rather than rising with rising incomes, saving rates have been stagnating or even falling. In comparison to the 19th century, the cognitive prowess of the political and intellectual elites and the quality of public education have declined. And the rates of crime, structural employment, welfare dependency, parasitism, 
negligence, recklessness, incivility, psychopathy, and hedonism have increased. Just re-encapsulating uh, re basically everything we've been covering, um, you know, which I mean, this is a conclusion, so it makes sense. Ultimately, the course of human history is determined by ideas, whether they are true or false. Just as kings could not exercise their rule unless public opinion accepted their rule as legitimate, so democratic rulers are equally dependent on public opinion to sustain their political power. It is public opinion, therefore, that must change if we are to prevent the process of decivilization from running its full course. And just as monarchy was once accepted as legitimate but is today considered to be an unthinkable solution to the current social crisis, it is not inconceivable that the idea of democratic rule might someday be regarded as morally illegitimate and politically unthinkable. Such a delegitimization is a necessary precondition to avoiding ultimate social catastrophe. It is not government, uh, monarchical, or democratic that is the source of human civilization and social peace, but private property and the recognition and defense of private property rights, contractualism, and individual responsibility. Thing. That's the end of the chapter. Uh, I do like, I did underline that it is public opinion, therefore, that must change if we are to prevent the process of decivilization. Uh, mm. And then he kind of then connects that to the idea that, uh, you know, kind of what a degrade. And this is actually a point Dave brought up on a show a while ago uh, when he was kind of talking about, you know, I don't know what episode it was, but for some reason he brought up a Hoppe and Democracy God that failed. I don't think he's completely uh, king-pilled in that sense, if you will, um, Dave. Uh, but he did bring up the point that monarchies are, to be fair, they are kind of on their face a little bit silly. Which kind of makes sense why the people were very much like, well, that's the, the king's thing. And so that is kind of, I think, probably in some way what led to their demise is a modern mm. people kind of got hip to it. And so the point Hop is making is the same thing can happen with democracy. I would say it's probably going to be harder. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the same uh, concept can still hold true that eventually, uh, you know, I guess a, uh, a rise and, uh, you know, class consciousness or something to where they start realizing this is horseshit and people start to, you know, because it really, at the end of that is kind of what it comes down to is public opinion. Um, yeah. You know, mm. whether, yeah. Well, whether it's in a large degree or a small degree, like I'm not saying that the, the entire one day, the all of us is just gonna be a magical free place, but it could be something like New Hampshire or Florida or, or this one little, uh, you know, area that's a few square miles or whatever, yeah. you know? So yeah, so yeah, Hoppe definitely uh, yeah, is an advocate for uh, decentralization, and uh, please is here saying that a lot of the Swiss still insist that uh, they're not sovereign and that cantons cannot leave in practice. So maybe there are still a lot of uh, centralist uh, Swiss there that uh, do not uh, believe in secession. So I, I mean, could either be way, it's still more decentral decentralized yeah. in a sense. I mean, right. you know, I don't know. Right. I'm we're not we're obviously we're not here to argue the, the no no yeah so of, uh, yeah. I know. Uh, could, could be right. Maybe they're far more, maybe the point isn't aptly made there, but I mean, either way, they are a little bit more broken up. It's better right. than a single unit. Right. So um, yeah, Hoppe, yeah, of course, yeah, advocates decentralization. He advocates for, you know, 1,000 Liechtensteins, essentially, where you have thousands of essentially really small nations that are like essentially like monarchies, at least over uh, the current state of affairs. And like what you were just saying um, is kind of one of the main like points in this book where it's harder for like a king and a monarchy because it seems like a silly thing it's harder for that king to like sort of maintain 
like that sort of rule, right? Because the people like realize this is kind of stupid. We're being ruled over by this guy, which is why sort of democracy is like more insidious because it is a system of rule that uh, sort of takes over everything more so. And it's uh, the people are less likely to even realize what's going on. Yep. Well, you ready to get out of here, bud? Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, you'll catch us on the next one. Uh, we'll be starting chapter two. Uh, I think I already closed the books. I don't know what chapter two is. I forget. Uh, but but uh, we'll be doing chapter two next. I will warn you guys a little bit. Of the beginning of the that chapter is kind of recovering a lot of stuff we've already covered. But you know, if you're if you're if you're, I mean, if you've someone who's already read the book, then you don't know. Maybe that'd be something for you to skim mm-hmm. through or whatever. But if you're someone who's not read the book, then you know it's always good to kind of redrive these points in. That's how a lot of yeah. people write. They'll kind of recover, you know, the same shit they did because. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this if these are new concepts to you and you're watching this, it, it, it will benefit. To me and you, it does kind of like, oh, God, we're going over it again. But for other people, it's kind of like, you know, hammering it in. It takes a while before it gets in there. Yeah, yeah um, so the chapter we just read was mostly about time preference, and then he sort of starts applying it to a little bit of history and kind of the overall, like, forms of government or whatever. And uh, chapter two is monarchy, democracy, and natural order. So it is kind of more of the same thing, but it's, like, through a bit of a different lens, I think. Yeah. All right, uh, I see Eddie Graham is one of my patrons. Good show, guys. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate you showing up. Uh, I saw someone in the chat, uh, you know, bringing up uh, my OKC series. Uh, you know, I'm just waiting on uh, when Richard's ready to, and then we'll do another one. Uh, I may or may not. Uh, I don't want to say who or what I'm talking about, but I may be able to get something, a, a little special treat in that series. So uh, I have one or two episodes left because me and him pretty much all we really have left to do is cover Trinidu. And then probably maybe some other like cookie stuff that's like uh, in there, uh, you know, in the whole OKC stuff. You're going to have John Doe on your show. Yeah, we're bringing on John Doe too. Yep. Yeah. Uh, um, but all right, man, you want to go ahead and drop the plugs? We'll get the hell out of here. Sure. I'm Toad, uh, TPH underscore Toad on Twitter. Uh, I do Tower Power Hour with Jose and Clint Russell, uh, Top Lobster, Cole, a.k.a. Fat Dave, and sometimes Reed Coverdale. Uh, we were all on the show last night. Uh, we had a pretty wild episode i would say with uh, mark random yeah. last night that was yeah very random uh sexually charged depraved episode let's say and we found out a lot of stuff about cole that we didn't know so yeah random random weirdly has a i don't know what it is but his presence like he just whenever he comes to the show it's it's a banger uh so he's uh, he's one of the bros man he's yeah. uh, he's down to just hang out he's a funny guy uh he he's got a lot of uh, yeah. He's a degenerate. He's got a lot of wild stories. Yeah, definitely fits in with us. And uh, probably insane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that episode is uh, up on YouTube, and I'll be uh, putting the description in there and putting it up on the other platforms uh, probably tomorrow. So yeah, and if you're watching this later, uh, you know, not catching the live stream, it's already out. So it's already yeah, you know, everything's right. on all the platforms. So and we're live Wednesday nights on uh, Odyssey, YouTube, and hopefully soon Rumble. Uh, so we need a hundred subscribers on yeah. Run on Rumble to be live on Rumble, and we have a Patreon, which is Patreon.com/slash Tower Power Hour. Yeah, we just started the Rumble, so I uh, don't think we're some scrubs just because we haven't got to the hundred subs yet. We just started, so uh, if you're a Rumble user, go go definitely please go follow the show. Even if you have no intention to ever watch it, just hook us up. That way we can at least start live streaming too. Because once we get to 100 subs, we can start live streaming to Rumble. So yeah, uh, subscribing costs nothing. Just do it. Yeah, yeah. So we'd appreciate it. Uh, all right, man. Uh, this is uh, this is the No Way Jose Show. You can find me on YouTube, uh, all the major auto podcasters, Odyssey as well. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Senor Jose 2020. 
Uh, hopefully it won't be for too much longer. I'm still waiting for getting my old accounts back. I know. Come this on. Shit I'm on. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook, Jose Galison there. I'm on Instagram now too. I don't even remember what my name is, but you probably just type in Jose Galison or it might be under no way Jose. I don't fucking know. Uh, but I, I don't even know how to use Instagram. So, but yeah, patreon.com no way Jose 2020. If you want to support me, like, share, subscribe, uh, you know, let people know about this if this is something they'd be interested in. Uh, and uh, yeah, I appreciate everyone who showed up. I uh, appreciate every, all of you guys who watch this and support the show. With that, we are out of here. All right. Peace. Beep, beep, beep.